Lafayette County, August 5th, 1987. 25-year-old David Hendrickson is scouting deer trails in anticipation of the upcoming bow hunting season. The trail he will take this day outside of the small village of Blanchardville will be one he would likely never forget. Hendrickson comes upon the decomposing nude body of a woman, spread out, lying in the woods in the scalding summer heat. The last of several nude female bodies found throughout the South Central region. The summer of 1987 is remembered as one of the most brutal in our state's history. A summer in which fear and panic ran wild, and seemingly nobody was safe, not even in their own homes. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode 25 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host Scott Whitman along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. Oh, How you, you doing, Mick? <laughs> You've been practicing that? You Trying, sounded more uh, optimistic. Very upbeat Not, today. Oh, that other guy freaking <laughs> I gotta listen to. Very upbeat today. We are in full swing into summer. Feels great. Quarter of a century as far as episodes. We're 25. 25. It's taken a while to get here. Milestone. Here it is. It is. We should be proud. We are going to have. We should be. I don't know that we are, but we should be. Baby steps. (laughs) We're, We're coming along. Summer is in full swing, and we are heading out this summer to several places, starting with, in a couple of weeks, Summer Wind Mansion, which we've talked about many times on this show. Episode two, if you haven't heard, is all about the very haunted summer wind it was part of the mansion. countdown we did too for halloween so in july of this year mickey and i uh, along with jim cooper uh, are going to be heading with our friend craig Naring and the fox valley ghost hunters up to summer wind for probably the last weekend that any kind of public investigations are going to be allowed up there i did find this story on the internet here about this and i just want to talk about it here it says are you brave enough to buy one of wisconsin's most haunted places i'm not Oh, I thought you were asking. We're just not rich enough. That's yeah, that's true. I have the bravery. Wisconsin's infamous Summerwind Mansion may lay in ruins today, but it's still considered one of the top ten most haunted places in the entire United States. 
People say Summerwind Mansion in Lando Lakes, Wisconsin, has been haunted since the day it was built in 1916, and it is often featured in paranormal shows, books, and investigations. The spooky history of Summerwind Mansion is long, and one of the most notorious stories about Summerwind involves the property's original owner, U.S. Secretary of Commerce Robert Patterson Lamont. According to Wisconsin Frights, it says, quote, Lamont once took aim and fired a gun at a ghost he encountered in the house, leaving permanent bullet holes in the wood. The bullet holes were said to have still been visible in the walls straight up until Summerwind's destruction in 1988. So is shooting at ghosts the only sad story Summerwind has? Oh, heck no. And it goes on to talk about a lot of the hauntings that went on in that mansion, including a vanishing corpse in a closet, mysterious voices coming from empty rooms, doors and windows opening or closing on their own, several sightings of ghostly women, and a ghost named Jonathan Carver desperately searching for a land deed hidden in the foundation. Again, Mickey and I cover Summerwind Mansion in episode two. It is steeped in history. It is, as I said, one of uh, Life Magazine named it one of the top nine haunted houses in the, in, in the entire nation. And we actually go into some detail about everything you just mentioned, even the bones in the walls and all that stuff. So if you are interested in anything you just heard, go listen to that episode. July 14th uh, is the eagerly anticipated date that Mickey and I are going to be going on the grounds of Summerwind Mansion. Not much of the house is, is remaining. The foundation is there. Two very tall, ominous-looking chimneys are still there. Again, because it's for sale, the future of the lot is in limbo. We have no idea what's going to be happening with it. It could be uh, torn down completely. It could be made into a nice new lake house. We have no idea. Um, So very possibly this could be the last time any kind of public investigation like this is going to be going on. So July 14th, Mickey and I and Jim Cooper are going to be heading there, doing what we can to, uh, to talk to some ghosts. And we will definitely be coming back with an update after that. Even if we don't have any encounters, it's just going to be nice to be on the site that we've talked so much about. And that's, like you say, a nationally well-known site. So it'd be cool just to be there and get the feeling of it. No doubt. Super looking forward to that. Um, Steeped, as I said, in a lot of history, both paranormal history and just history in general. Being, you know, a 1916 mansion built by who came to be a U.S. Secretary of Commerce during the Great Depression. So... Uh, looking forward to that, a very creepy looking place, and looking forward to uh, to finding whatever still might remain there. In- right up our alley. Talking about creepy, I just saw a list the <laughs> Spe- other Speaking of what we love. <laughs> the other day, it talked about the creepiest places in every state. And Summerwind, incidentally, was not the place that they had for Wisconsin. It was actually the Fister Hotel in Milwaukee, which we have talked about before on this show. It's a very well-known purported to be haunted hotel in milwaukee that same halloween episode where we did the list that's why these lists sometimes have some legitimacy to them but sometimes it's just people looking up stuff online and not necessarily understanding what else is going on in this case it doesn't sound like it's as legit because summer wind is a well-known site throughout the state and country but the fister may be not as big a deal but certainly would i think we you know both of us would agree and i think most people would agree that the fister hotel which is like a five-star hotel in downtown it's got its history for sure but it's not the creepiest place in the state right there's a lot of places creepier right including mickey's basement right that would be on that list some of the dance clubs i've been to yeah. Not the Fister, but we, however... We agreed to not talk about my basement oh, on sorry. air. You're right. You're all right. right. Sorry about that. The models are all doing well. In any event, it is still purported to be very haunted. It's very well known to be haunted. Major League Baseball teams, visiting teams who play the Brewers stay there. And it was just reported, you know, I think we're going back to last month here, where 
Dodgers player rents an Airbnb, refuses to stay at, quote, haunted Fister Hotel in Milwaukee. That is Mookie Betts of the L.A. Dodgers, who refused to stay at the Fister because of its reputation. And I'm sure he's stayed there in the past. He's played here before. And we actually mentioned that during that episode, but I I actually posted on our Facebook page uh, that article about him, the Airbnb, instead of going there because he just had experiences that he doesn't want to go through again. And can't blame the guy, you know. He's got a game to play the next day. He doesn't want to be all spooked out. It says, according to Dodgers writer Bill Plunkett, Mookie Betts decided to rent an Airbnb instead, quote, just in case the stories about the Fister ghosts are true. Betts said he doesn't really believe in ghosts, but doesn't want to find out he's wrong. And he's one of the biggest names in baseball. I play fantasy baseball, and he's one of the top ten guys. So I'm pretty sure he can do what he wants, and (laughs) it's it just put some legitimacy to, to the whole story and you know people who believe some of this stuff it's it's pretty amazing it says Betts reportedly has stayed at the Fister hotel before but has no stories to tell however he couldn't get any sleep due to the noises he would hear it says quote Dodgers are staying at legendary haunted Fister hotel in Milwaukee but not Mookie Betts rented an Airbnb for some friends and is staying there just in case the stories about ghosts are true. <laughs> so he doesn't case. really believe in ghosts, but does not want just to find in out case. he's wrong. He doesn't believe, but this just-in-case guy keeps showing up. Now, this is not unusual, really, for the Brewers. Lots of players, and this article here goes down a list of them that I won't get into, a lot of players refuse to stay there. <laughs> right. They find their own accommodations when they're here playing the Brewers because what? they want nothing to do with the fist and a lot of that has to do with power of suggestion you know even if sure. you're not see, you you can convince yourself you're seeing things because you're spooked by it so i mean whether it's true or not if if you're trying to prepare and get some sleep for the next to the game the next day and you know your mind's gonna play tricks with you you, you make that decision and it's probably the right one creepy wisconsin <laughs> comes into play here even for you know very mainstream things like major league baseball we have our power i did find this this other list here that just came out a couple of weeks ago. It's called Eight Obscure Paranormal Documentaries That Will Scare You Out of Your Mind. Eight Obscure Paranormal Documentaries That Will Scare You Out of Your Mind. Now, obviously, on Badger Bazaar... We don't have much of a mind left, so we're not that worried about it. And we don't. Oh, ta- that's not what you're going to say? No. I was going to say, we don't talk about these lists at all unless they pertain to what we're talking about, right? Right, right. And out of these eight obscure paranormal documentaries... No less than three of them <laughs> are right here. Just like the alcohol Wisconsin, lists that go Wisconsin on. Based. Usually half the, half the cities in these alcohol lists are from Wisconsin. Half the creepy ones are from Wisconsin. Again, there's a reason we do this podcast, right? We, got our, just, we, got, we have our niche, and we are good at it. And it's, you know, it's not only us that know it, obviously. There's people. We have a reputation, and we do a real good job living up to it. We can drink and we can be creepy. That's what we do. Now, the first documentary on this list is called Haxon, H-A-X-N. And this is actually a 1922 silent film. It says, for our first documentary about the supernatural, we have to go all the way back to one of the oldest surviving documentaries that still exists. Benjamin Christensen's legendary 1922 silent film, Haxon. This ambitious Swedish film chronicles witchcraft through the ages. It says, though it has become a classic, it has been released... By the Criterion Collection, Haxon's very age and status as a silent film mean that it isn't as often seen by modern audiences as it perhaps should be, especially given that many of its grim tableau have never been exceeded for horrific imagery. That sounds quite quite interesting. Horrific yeah. imagery. Right. The other one on this list is called UFO. It says the film, which combines a fictionalized narrative with analysis of actual early UFO footage, 
provided a template for many UFO documentaries that would come later and exists as an eerie relic of a moment when UFOs were at the forefront of the public consciousness and remained unexplained and underexplored. I think today UFOs are not underexplored. Right. I th- you know, you see, oh, there was just something that happened in Vegas the other day right. where apparently police body cam footage yeah. caught one. That was um, big news. Yeah. And more and more, the governments in this country and elsewhere are starting to publicly admit existence of these things that and I, as i've said a few times throughout our episodes we're, we're finally getting to the point where we have the technology and the knowledge and the you know just the, the realization of the of our vast universe that there is other life and possibly it's been you know either exchanging with us or at least in our presence for a long time so yeah it, we're starting to understand that a little more i believe it's certainly become much more um, in the American consciousness and world consciousness. You're not really. crazy if you talk about it like you once were. Number three on this list, the first Wisconsin-based to show up on the list, Wisconsin Death Trip. One that, obviously, Mickey and I have talked about um, extensively on the show. We have an entire episode about it in episode three, I believe. Yep. Wisconsin Death Trip. This says, quote, adapted from the notorious 1973 book of the same name, James Marsh's 1999 film combines voiceover narration from actor Ian Holm, reading contemporary newspaper accounts with silent black and white reenactments of historic tragedies that rocked the residents of Black River Falls, Wisconsin in the late 1800s. The combined weight of so much unlikely tragedy with the local beliefs and superstitions of the predominantly German, Swedish, and Norwegian inhabitants of the region paints a grim picture without any clear cause or through line. Now, we, in that episode, also talked about the causes that most people believe is why a lot of this stuff happened. And I don't necessarily believe it's just because they were German, Swiss, or Norwegian. No, there were... (laughs) I'm I'm going to go ahead and assume that... They do have their bizarre superstitions, but there were actual, you know, socioeconomic things going on that caused almost an entire state to go mad right our state it's, yeah. it's a really interesting episode there's a lot of stories and and just the news clips alone that we uh, we've read a few of them are really interesting just the way they worded things back then number four on this list beware the slender man we will be talking about that some we some will point. certainly cover I'm that so coming excited up. to talk about that when we do it now it says we all know that the slender man isn't real right one of the most famous creepypastas, Slender Man, was created by Eric Knudsen on the Something Awful forums in June of 2009, and yet Slender Man has accomplished something few other paranormal entities have managed. He was responsible for a near-fatal stabbing in 2014. Here in our state, but of course. Beware the Slender Man focuses its lens on this crime, which was committed by two girls who wanted to appease the fictional boogeyman and goes from there to explore the repercussions of this creepy creation on our world in both fact and fiction. After all, once even a made-up story reaches far enough into our lives, the two begin to blur in unsettling ways. That sounds awesome, I just I will be watching that. I literally don't get creeped out real easily. As you were speaking, I got the willies two different times. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that does sound awesome. And it's, it's kind of funny. There's a Stephen King movie coming out, The Boogeyman. Right. Real, yeah. real soon, so that's along those lines too. So weird timing. Number five on this list is the Demon House, and this one I have seen. This is by uh, Zach Baggins from Ghost Adventures. It says, "Is it as Dread Central's Steve Barton said, 
one of the single most compelling documentaries on the existence of the supernatural that I've ever witnessed? Or, as investigator Kenny Biddle claims, is it filmed in a documentary style but doesn't portray real events? In either case, the 2018 flick Demon House follows Zach Baggins as he purchases a home in Gary, Indiana that was purportedly the site of demonic activity so severe that it got the Department of Child Services involved. Baggins himself is no stranger to the paranormal, having acted at this, as the primary host for the Travel Channel series Ghost Adventures. Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, this haunted house flick is sure to provide plenty of frights. I have seen Demon House. Um, as I said, Zach Baggins did buy it, I think, for the sole purpose of making a documentary. And then after he made the documentary, which, if you know Zach Baggins, if you know Ghost Adventures, I'm sure you can imagine what the documentary looks like he then tore the house down which you know draw your own conclusions from that i do respect zach baggins he certainly has a brand ghost adventure certainly has a brand it's been the largest uh, rated show on the travel channel for 20 years maybe and now they're actually going to the discovery channel yeah certainly worth a look there are as this this uh, little blurb said um, things that happen in this house that are completely unexplainable agents from the department of child services saw things happen in that house. So. Well, and even if you don't agree with it, it's it's entertaining. It's it's intriguing. It keeps your interest, whether you are skeptical or not. It, it's definitely worth the watch. Number five on this list and the last Wisconsin-based documentary, The Bray Road Beast. We'll be talking about that soon. Coming up, I think, next episode. Seth Breedlove and his production company, Small Town Monsters, have made a cottage industry out of documentaries about cryptids all over the country, from the Mothman of Point Pleasant to the Bogey Creek creature of rural Arkansas. In The Bray Road Beast, Breedlove sets his sights on the eponymous wolf-like humanoid said to haunt Walworth County, Wisconsin. Through interviews and dramatic recreations, he brings this local legend to chilling life in a film that Wisconsin frights called Unnerving and completely fascinating. I didn't even know that. I'm, I want to watch that, too. That'll help me with the research. You're checking that out. Yeah. The next one on here is called The House in Between. It may not be as famous as many of the other haunted houses that have appeared on paranormal investigation shows, but according to filmmaker Steve Gonzalez from Ghost Hunters fame and Kendall Welpton, the Jackson House in Mississippi has been undergoing a continuous paranormal investigation for more than 10 years in an attempt to get to the bottom of what is happening in what may be the most haunted house in America, as the film's marketing materials would have it. I'm excited to see all this stuff. Yeah, that's pretty intriguing. And then the last one on it is called An Unknown Compelling Force. And this is about, if you've heard of it, called the Dietlev Pass Incident, which is fascinating to me. I have not seen this documentary, but I will definitely watch it. I didn't even know it was out there. This says, quote, in 1959, nine experienced hikers perished under mysterious circumstances in Russia's Ural Mountains. The event, which has become known as the Dyatlov Pass incident, is one of the most compelling and haunting unsolved mysteries of modern times, and yet it never got an exhaustive documentary approach until 2021. That was when filmmaker Liam Lejulo released an unknown compelling force, a chilling look at the incident, debunking some of the more outlandish theories surrounding the deaths of the hikers, but providing as many haunting questions as it does answers. So they just disappeared? Well, no, they were they were found. They they well, they disappeared off of communication. So actually when Russia went to find them, they they were all dead. 
Because it kind of rang a bell with the Michigan Triangle, that one guy who went going across the lake and just appeared later on. Whether Yeah, he was, disappeared for like 15 months or something. Right, and yeah. he was wearing different clothes and all that stuff. So it's along those lines. That's why it jumped in my head. So these hikers, you know, nobody could get a hold of them, so they went to find them, and they found their camp where they stayed, but they were all dead, and they were scattered around. Yeah, this guy like They were running dead, away from something. Like, and again, they were wearing, they like put on other people's, it looked like they, they ran out of their tent in a hurry, like they were afraid of something. Because they put on clothes that were on backwards, and they were not necessarily theirs. So this was a lot more of a sudden thing than than what I'm talking about. Right, and they all had like a lot of like radiation burns. Oh, radio, really? Like it, it, something happened to these people, and we still don't know today. That sounds what that like is. it there's might be extraterrestrial. Ton of theories even. about it. Yeah, right. And there's the thing is their tent was it had like claw marks on it. Like it looked like something was trying to claw at them. Or, you know, there's theories that it was actually knife marks from them trying to knife their way out of it. Oh, sure. So it's just, it's a fascinating story. Yeah, I want to see more Um, about that. So, and that one is called, again, An Unknown Compelling Force. The incident is called the Dyatlov Pass. It's D-Y-A-T-L-O-V Pass incident. And it's super, it's super interesting. It's, it's, it's paranormal just in the fact that we don't know what happened to them, you know, but there, of course, there are people that think that. You know, whether it would be aliens or or a Bigfoot type thing right. got to them. Who knows what it was? Um, but the theories are going to just right. go extravagant, though, because it, what a strange story. That sounds amazing. The last thing I want to talk about today, and this is from June 7th, so just from last, just, uh, just from a, a couple days ago. And this, Four days ago. This is kind of, um, it goes along the lines about what we're talking about today. And I was reading this, and it really reminded me of some of the cases um, of what we're talking about today. It says, Brutal Janesville 1988 murder remains unsolved. The brutal murder of 23-year-old Janesville woman is still unsolved after 35 years. Virginia Hendrickson was stabbed repeatedly and killed in her home on Canilands Road near the airport on June 15, 1988. Rock County Sheriff's Office investigators interviewed several people, but charges were never filed. Investigators said Hendrickson's body was found on her living room floor. She'd been stabbed at least 35 times, and her throat had been cut. 35 times. Wow. Reports from that time show what happened while Hendrickson's one-year-old daughter was asleep in her crib. The baby was unharmed, but was taken to the hospital for dehydration. That part of the story is very reminiscent of something that we're going to be talking about today, which I think is a good segue into our subject for today. So it says, if anyone has information, to please come forward and contact Rock County Sheriff's Office at 608-757-8000 regarding the 35-year cold case of 23-year-old Virginia Hendrickson. So we're going back to 1987. 1987 was quite the year in Wisconsin. Let's set set the scene a little bit. 1987. I was 13, if that matters to anyone. Set the scene a little bit to 1987 so you can get a feel a very nostalgic feel for when we're going back to today. 1987. Here are the top movies for 1987. Beverly Hills Cop 2, Platoon, Fatal Attraction, The Untouchables, Three Men and a Baby, Secret of My Success, Lethal Weapon, Witches of Eastwick, Predator, Dragnet, La Bamba, Crocodile Dundee. Those are iconic movies. Robocop, Dirty Dancing, oh my God. Full Metal Jacket, Mannequin, Roxanne, Blind Date, Spaceballs, The Golden Child, 
Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, The Running Man, Adventures in Babysitting, The Lost Boys, Can't Buy Me Love, Princess Bride, Throw Mama from the Train, Police Academy 4, Eddie Murphy's Raw, Inner Space, Little Shop of Horrors, Hoosiers, Raising oh Arizona. This is one year. Dude, <laughs> some of those are my favorite most iconic movies of all time. This, you and I talk all the time about how I don't watch anything anymore. Right. I've seen every single one and, of these. Some movies. of those, like 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 Hoosiers, and I can't even remember. There was so many I can't remember. Some right. of those are my favorite. The, the, the kind of movies that are their favorites to the point every time they're on, you watch it, even though you know every word. We were talking the other day about you. You mentioned three or four. I didn't know there was twenty of them. Oh my god! Oh, it keeps going, man. Three Amigos, Hellraiser. <laughs> Oh Ishtar, Creepshow 2, every single movie I've seen. Right, and they're movies that anybody who likes right. movies has heard of, and they're legendary movies that stick in the public. So when I when I talk about I don't watch stuff anymore, they don't make this stuff anymore, no, dude. Not it's not even stuff close. Like that, right. And I mean, things have changed as far as attention span and all that stuff, and there's just so many things to, to choose from nowadays compared to back then, but... Yeah, these some of those movies, man, are iconic now. Like people watch them now, and it just changes you. You know, God. Let's move to music. You know, here's more more nostalgia for it. Here are the the top albums of 1987: Michael Jackson's "Bad," "Dirty Dancing" soundtrack, "Appetite for Destruction," Guns N' Roses, George yeah. Michael's "Faith," Def Leppard "Hysteria," U2 the Joshua Tree, oh Whitney God. Houston's debut. In Excess, Kiss, White Snake, White Snake, Cher, Madonna, Who's That Girl, Momentary Lapse of Reason, Pink Floyd, Aerosmith, Permanent Vacation, Bruce Springsteen, Tunnel of Love, Tiffany, Tiffany. I mean, it just Motley Crue, Girls, my Girls, Girls. Artists, it's just, and those it are their best albums and on and it's their and best on. albums of the of iconic, legendary Hall of Fame artists. My God, wow, that was a what hell a of year, year, right? Yeah. And then. And then there's a lot of murder that happened here just in our state alone. Apparently, this stuff was motivating individuals to do things more so than normal. Maybe it, maybe it was the Summerfest lineup that did it to him. You want to hear the Summerfest lineup for 1987? I'm going to be remorseful that I didn't go more, but yeah. So it starts Thursday, June 25th, 1987. The Beach Boys, Tesla, The Bangles, Dolly Parton, Fraley's Comet, White Lion, Paul Simon, <laughs> Cheap Trick, Duran Duran and Erasure, Jimmy Buffett, Chicago, Spyro Gyra, John Denver, Whitney Houston. Other than maybe Spyro Gyra, I would want to see every one of those. And the Spyro Gyra was a one-hit wonder, but every one of those artists I would like to see. Now do yourself a favor and look at this year, 2023, look at their Summerfest lineup, and then compare it to what I just read. I think the lineup's pretty good this year, but... I don't think... Oh... That's going to be hard to compete with no matter what year you're talking. So that, that gets you back into a, a little groove. Yeah, now we're of, on uh, a good mood. Let's oh, talk about some murder. Seven was going on. Now, 1987 was, for all of the good movies and good music that was going on, 1987 was a rough year for Wisconsin. Specifically throughout the summer in Wisconsin, the atmosphere was a At little different. At least in a certain region that they're not used to it as much. There was a string of violent and horrific crimes that occurred throughout the state. Many of these happened in the central region, as Mickey just mentioned. Um, and it led many to believe that a serial killer was on the loose. It was Sauk County, Adams County, and Juneau counties for the most part is what we're referring to. For the most part. Now, the year started off really badly 
to begin with. In January of 1987 in Milwaukee, Keith Collada, a schizophrenic, murdered his wife Deborah by stabbing her 24 times in the chest. And then he stabbed their two young children, four-year-old daughter Constance and their two-year-old son Jacob over 20 times each because God told him to do so. In March of that year, Edward and Ruth Langbecker were found murdered in their home in Merrill, just outside of Wausau in Marathon County in an apparent home invasion. Edward was 74 and Ruth was 66. They were beaten and stabbed to death. Now, th- these, these were big stories at the time, obviously. This is 1987 when these things are happening. And that one was actually only 18 miles from the Coons family murders. Right. So obviously, it, it, these were big stories until the summer when things kind of really went off the rails. On June 15th, the body of 18-year-old Angela Hackle was found three days after she went missing from a bar in Sauk City. Her body was found naked in a wooded area outside of Sauk City in Sauk County, and she had been shot. On July 4th, the body of 14-year-old Tara Cassens was found about five days after she went missing. Her body was found naked in a wooded area outside of Mequon. She had died of blunt force trauma to her head and face. You might be hearing a theme here. And now on that same night of July 4th, you'll recall, from July 4th into July 5th of 1987 was the murder of the Coons family. That was also in Marathon County. And that's an episode, that's a a murder that Mickey and I covered in episode five, the Coons family murders in Marathon County, which was actually in Athens, Wisconsin, only 18 miles from the Langbecker home. Um, And at this time, when this was all going on, the Coons murder was still at large. At the time. On July 24th, reports of burglary and arson at a home in Oxford. Nobody was home at the time, but the dog was stabbed to death and discarded in the bedroom. There was a braided rug found draped over the stove. The burners were on and there was liquor poured around the kitchen to fuel the fire. And it was reported that there was stolen a 357 Magnum revolver, a black holster, and a distinctive butterfly knife. So on July 29th, the partially clad body of 28-year-old Linda Necriner was found outside of Wisconsin Dells in Adams County. She was abducted from her home with two small children left in an upstairs bedroom, and she was found in a wooded area, also shot. And on August 5th, the body of 30-year-old Barbara Blackstone was found about a month after she went missing from her home in Linden Station, which is just northwest of Wisconsin Dells. Her body was found 70 miles south of her home in Blanchardville. Ironically, close to where she grew up. She again is found naked, in a wooded area. Cause of death was never determined due to the state of decomposition. Now, this was also the summer when a a manhunt was underway for Stephen K. Thompson, who in May 1987 walked away from a prison work camp near Marquette, Michigan, where he had been serving time for arson. Now, he runs away from that, and by July, he makes his way on foot to north-central Wisconsin, where he's breaking into cabins, stealing food and supplies along the way. Now, on July 24th of 1987, the owner of a cabin near Wausau arrived to find an intruder in his house. That homeowner, Bob Rakaw of Weston, called the police and a standoff followed. Rakaw was shot in the arm and the stomach and hospitalized for six weeks. Other bullets narrowly missed a Marathon County Sheriff's deputy officer who responded to the call. So a massive manhunt follows as hundreds of police search the woods for this guy. Helicopters searches overhead, dogs tracked him. For months, the story was front-page news in Wausau and really all over the state. It even became a, it was a clever name for it because this guy was referred to as Rambo. He was referred to as Rambo, obviously, because he's uh, living in the woods. 
Right. Now people are freaking out, right? This guy's out there and he's breaking into cabins. He's stealing things. A lot of this he's doing to survive. But right? he's he armed and he's not afraid to shoot at you, evidently. Now the issue with this guy is he was never caught. He actually turned himself in once he got to Minnesota. He crisscrossed the entire state. He had to go out of state before he finally turned himself into authorities. In October of 1987, he turns himself in. So, a lot going on in the summer. What a summer. Of 1987, right? Now, some of these had resolutions to them. Obviously, Keith Collada, who killed his family, uh, there was never any question about who did that, right? Never any question about what happened there. He was deemed NGI not guilty by reason of insanity, and he spent many years um, in and out of mental institutions. And he was in the news just a couple years ago, you may recall. He walked in front of a train in 2020 in Wauwatosa, killed himself. Now, 22-year-old David Kohnhorst was arrested and tried for the murders of Ed and Ruth Langbecker, for which he also confessed. There wasn't a lot of question about what went on there. It appears he smoked marijuana, did some coke, entered their home while they were home, robbed them, and killed them over $45. He received two life sentences for which he Just continues to serve. Just kind of hopped up and had a bad night. And in 1993, James Duquette was convicted of the murder of Tara Cassins. Now, many of you may know that name, James Duquette. He was a 1977 graduate of Appleton West High School who was also convicted in the 1991 murder of Anne Primesberger of Appleton. Now, while he was on trial for both the Primesberger and Casson's murders, he was already serving a life sentence in Massachusetts for the rape and murder of a 13-year-old girl there, where he remains to this day. So the notion that there was a serial killer roaming the state in 1987 was true. Now, we don't know how many he actually got. We only know that he's got these three. And we will cover James Duquette um, and remember his victims in a future episode of Badger Bazaar. So this gives you a little bit of an idea about what was going on in Wisconsin in 1987, especially that summer. We have bodies turning up. We have what seems like maybe a possible serial killer on the loose. We have home invasions going on uh, where weapons are being stolen and the houses are being started on fire. Mad runs of people doing things and zigzagging throughout the state. Now, as we said, some of these have resolutions, and we're going to focus on three cases. The murders of Angela Hackle, Linda Necriner, and Barbara Blackstone, because many people still today, even with some apparent resolutions to these, many people still today believe that they are indeed connected. So let's look at these a little bit closer. Angela Hackle was born December 9th, 1968. She's 18 years old. She was living with her family in Lone Rock when she graduated high school in 1987 from River Valley High School in Spring Green. Angela, otherwise known as Angie, Faye Hackle was her full name. So we're in Frank Lloyd Wright country now, right? Yep. Spring Green. Right. Now, on the night of June 11th, Angela, or Angie as Mickey said, and that is what she was known as, went to a softball game. And as I'm talking about this, I'm just realizing right now, it is June 11th. That was yeah. not planned, by no, the way. Oh, we, yeah, we just occurred to just occurred to us both right now, right? Bizarre. Now, Angie, um, on June 11th, 1987, went to a softball game in Spring Green. And then she went out with a couple of good friends of hers, Becky Nelson and Joe Wilkinson. These were good friends of hers, right? Longtime friends, trusted. They went to Hondo's Bar, which was in downtown Sauk City, about 30 miles from Lone Rock. Now, I kind of hate to be this guy, but... Why, why start changing yourself now? <laughs> you know, let's remember Angie's 18 years old, right? 
Obviously, today, it's known that you have to be 21 to get into a bar, right? But this is 1987. Yeah, things were a little different. Well, that law went into effect in September of 1986. Now, the drinking age moved from 18 to 21 in September of 1986. We're now in June of 1987. But we're talking about Wisconsin. Right, We're talking about small-town bars. No doubt about it. So I know it wasn't, you know, probably wasn't much of an issue then. Well, even here in, here in Appleton, if you were underage, you could go to certain places, and if you knew somebody, or if right. you weren't doing too crazy right. of things, I'm, you know, I'm just speculating here. If Hondos follows the law, maybe she's still here. I don't know. I don't. I don't mean to be that guy. I'm just saying, you know, I was 11 years old at the time, right? It's just things you got to question, sure. obviously. Yes. Right? You know, the drinking age was 21. Now, a lot of times, you you'll be let into a bar at 18 with when you're with your parents or a guardian. She was with friends, right? So I just, you know, these are things that need to be mentioned. I'm not holding Hondo's responsible. Of course, no, for right. I mean, and like you say, even if they card you, that you don't necessarily know what you're looking at is legit or, you know, maybe right. fake IDs and all that. And and these smaller communities, you know the people. You, you assume they're going to be responsible even if you're letting them knowingly drink underage. It's just that that's what happens in a lot of states, but especially in this yeah. Times Stayed. times were different in 1987, right? We're, especially we're compared to now. Less than a year into the law changing, so I'm, you know, it's just a thing. But you do have to consider it, especially considering what we're talking about. Now, in any event, she's at Hondo's bar with her friends Becky and Joe, and Angie is driving them in her boyfriend's car. She has a boyfriend, Ron Lewis, right? He's not with them that night. I don't know where he is. I don't know if he's working. He can't be there for whatever reason. No, and we don't. You don't find much about that. So she's driving his car. And by all indications, uh, they were very much dating, right? She's got his car. She's They're an got item, his car, right? right? She's out with friends, borrowing his car. So Everything I read, it was referred to as her boyfriend's car. They're not saying boyfriend if they're not, you know, steady, as the term was back No then. doubt. Now, we say this because when they're there, when they're at Hondo's, Angie and her friends meet a guy at a bar. They meet a guy at the bar, and his name is Terry Volbrecht. He's a local guy. He's from Sauk City. He's 24 years old, but they didn't know him. Neither Angie nor her friends had ever met him before, but they're hanging out with him at the bar. You know, not unusual. This happens. I've met plenty of people at bars. Of course. Right. From what I remember and what I don't. Now, bar close comes, 2 a.m., and they're all seemingly getting along well, and Angie and Terry apparently want to continue hanging out and go find an after bar. Apparently, Angie had some other friends that she wanted to meet up with after the bar closed at 2 and Becky and Joe were, were kind of ready to, to end the night. So they actually said, no, go ahead. We found another ride home. So Becky and Joe find another ride home, and they said, you know, go ahead. You guys go without us. Now, surely if they had any reason to believe that Terry was up to no good, they would not have done that, right? Right. If they're Again, looking out for their friend, they're going right. to make sure she's all right, and they must have believed she was. These are longtime friends. These are trusted friends. Apparently they didn't see anything wrong with what was going on with Terry and Angie. Now, they're not going to abandon her with somebody that they feel that might be looking to take advantage of her, might be looking to do her harm, you know? So they say, no, go ahead. We're, we're okay. We found another ride home. To the point we were alluding to, though, it is a little weird they didn't go, well, she has a boyfriend. Why is she talking to this guy? I mean, that kind of triggers a little bit. Sure, but that's her talking. business, you know? Right, yeah. right. And maybe they're not doing that well as far as boyfriend and girlfriend. Who knows all the story or all the details as far as some, something like that. So Joe and Becky find another ride home and they leave. And Angie and Terry Volbrecht leave the bar together. Angela Hackle is never seen alive again. She never came home the next morning, which obviously alarmed her parents. 
And when she didn't return at all the next day, and they learn that Becky and Joe were home, well, then they get nervous, right? So they call police, and they file a missing persons report. Three days later, the car that she was driving, her boyfriend's car, was found by her boyfriend and her brother who were out looking for her. It was abandoned along Highway 12 out near the airport there. In Sauk City, 20 miles away. They saw some of her clothing was in the car, but her boyfriend, whose name is Ron Lewis, as we mentioned, uh, he noted that a 22 caliber handgun that he kept in the car was not there. Now they know this is bad, right? She's missing, the car is sitting here abandoned, and a gun that he kept in the car is gone. So a massive search ensues. Hundreds of searchers are out there. Sheriff's Department, community members, volunteers, right? There's planes overhead. They're looking for this girl. Now, two days later on June 15th, three days after she went missing and during a spell of 100-plus degree days, Angela Hackle's body was found in a wooded area about six miles west of Sauk City, naked and on her knees, hanging from a tree by a tire chain. This is northwest of Madison, just to give you some location. Shot three times in the back, hanging from a tree by a tire chain. With a chain, tire chain. And there was lots of branches and brush and stuff piled up around at the body, presumably to hide it. The, the term they actually use, it's a pile of brush arranged beneath the body in a makeshift pyre. And what a pyre is is a pile of combustible material, especially for burning corpses, typically as part of a funeral ceremony. So this kind of paints a picture of what might have been going on in the, in the minds of whoever did this. So was it was that brush piled to hide the body, or was it piled to maybe start the body on fire? Right. Now, Valbrecht, obviously, well, he's looked at right away. And he, and he he's was... He's the last person seen with her, it makes sense. Sure. And he says, yes, we met at the bar. We actually left together. We went looking for an after party. She couldn't find her other friends, so we were, you know obviously attracted to one another, and we decided to go to this area, which was known as the Pines. The Pines, which is a popular party area for young people in these woods outside the city, you know, like where we've been for bonfires and stuff. It's a place where you can go and get away with stuff you're not necessarily going to get away with otherwise. So they go to this place in the woods, and they have sex on a red sleeping bag that was in her boyfriend's car. This is his story. Now, that sleeping bag was found where the body was found. And he's making it sound like it's consenting sex. So they were both consenting, and, and this is something they were both wanting to do. So his story is they went to this place, they had sex on that sleeping bag. She dropped him back off in Sauk City, and that was the last he'd seen of her. And they actually, according to him, made plans to see each other again. This is Terry Volbrecht's story. The investigation goes on for years, right? For there's, ye- many there's years. There's nothing that... Other than being the last person to see her that we know of, there's nothing physically yet tying him to this crime. So the investigation goes on. So as of the summer of 1987, this is an unsolved crime. Now about 40 miles northeast of Lone Rock lies the small town of Linden Station in Juneau County just north of Wisconsin Dells, less than, I think, 10 miles from Wisconsin Dells. Now, on the morning of July 9th, 1987, 30-year-old Barbara Blackstone was busy getting her yard ready for a family gathering planned for the next day. She had spoke to her sister on the phone at 9 a.m., 
and stated she was about to take a break from mowing her lawn as she needed to run and get gas for the riding lawnmower. I think they had 80 acres or something. She's happily married. She's a successful teacher, as you mentioned, at New Lisbon High School. Life is good. She's just trying to host a party, and she ran out of gas. Right. All seemingly normal stuff. Now she And she was indeed seen at the Shell gas station between 1 and 2 in that afternoon. Uh, 1 and 2 of that afternoon getting gas for her lawnmower. So she's she's cutting her lawn. She's getting ready for a, for a cookout or a family gathering of some sort at their house the next day. So when her husband, Tom Blackstone, comes home from work at about 6 o'clock that night, and he finds Barb's car, which is a 1986 Chevy Spectrum, parked near a pole shed on the property, which is her usual parking spot. Nothing unusual as he pulls up. Keys are still in the ignition. Her purse was still in the house. But Barbara is nowhere to be found. Gas can was still in the trunk. So he doesn't know where she is, right? Where's Barbara? Night went by. Her purse wasn't even with her, right? It was in the house. Right. So a night goes by, and then another, and then a week. No Barbara, right? Nothing. She just vanished. He had to be worried after one day. So oh, sure. After yeah. a week, I mean, the panic, you're beyond panic. So search parties are formed for her. And now, you know, this is a couple weeks after what happened to Angela Hackle in the same general vicinity, 30 miles or so away. Now, again, search parties are formed, many by her students at New Lisbon High School, as Mickey said, where she was a computer technology and a business teacher. For weeks... Nothing turned up. Nothing. They can't find her. There's no leads. She obviously never comes back. And then on August 5th, almost a month after she goes missing, Barbara's nude body was found spread-eagled on her back by a hunter scouting locations along a deer trail. It was found near Blanchardville, which is 70 miles south of where she went missing from. Again, not far from where she grew up, ironically. She grew up, I believe, in Argyle, right, which is only about eight miles or so from where she was found. Right, exactly. Quote, she was lying there with her arms and legs spread-eagled as if someone had a hold of them and then just dropped her, unquote. Julie Mesikowski, a fellow teacher who worked with her, had a quote. They came out, and what they saw was the trunk of the car was up, the gas can was in the car, and there was no signs of a scuffle, so it looked like Barb willingly left with whoever came around, unquote. Another quote, not long after it happened, from former Juneau County Sheriff Gervais Thompson, Quote, there isn't anything to indicate exactly what did happen. It's been two days and she hasn't called home if she did leave her on her own. So it makes you believe she left unwillingly, unquote. So those two quotes kind of contradict each other, but basically nobody knows what's going on, including the person she lives with. So it's just a strange disappearance from out of nowhere. Like she was lifted up from out of nowhere. She just went to get gas and her stuff is left behind. There doesn't seem to be a struggle and she's just gone. Just strange. Now you can see why the state was on edge here. Barbara Blackstone goes missing and turns up murdered, while the Angela Hackle case a month earlier was still unsolved. Not too far away. As is the Tara Cassins murder, all found naked and dumped in wooded areas. Now at the time, at the time Barbara Blackstone's body was found, law enforcement agents from the FBI, the state of Wisconsin, and five counties, Juneau, La Crosse, Adams, Sauk, and Vernon counties were meeting at a Juneau County Sheriff's Department to try and get a handle on what was going on here because another woman under very similar circumstances had gone missing just 15 miles 
from where Barbara Blackstone was abducted from, apparently abducted from. And a, and her body was actually already decomposing, so it had been there a while. Just about a week prior to Blackstone's body being found, 29-year-old Linda Necriner apparently also vanished from her home in rural Dell Prairie while seemingly simply doing household chores. Again, very similar. Tuesday, July 28th, was Linda's day off from her job at an insurance agency in Wisconsin Dells. Her husband, Brian, builds bridges for a construction company, and he was gone for about a week working on a job. So Linda was home with their two small daughters. The oldest was two, and the other one was basically an infant at this time. Linda had spoken to her mother on the phone about 10.30 Tuesday morning when her mother attempted to call again several times throughout the day, but Linda was not answering, which was unusual. Right? You try to call somebody four or five times and they don't answer when you know they're supposed to be home. Especially when it's your mom. Yes. Unless they're fighting, you'd think she'd answer. So around 8 p.m. that day, Linda's mother and her sister went to Linda's home to find her. Ask her, why are you not answering the phone? They're likely worried, so they're going to see what's up. So they go into the house and Linda is not there. They found the children unattended to. They found a basket of wet laundry fresh from the washer sitting there, and as soon as they recognized that the situation was completely awry, they called the police. So again, we have a woman... As if they just vanished from thin air. A woman at home doing chores around the house. She's doing laundry. In the middle of the of the, the chore. The obviously just took her laundry out of the wash. There's probably a doorbell, right? And the children are right there. So clearly Linda would not have left them willingly. These are not These are not planned situations from the people that are in the middle of them. So the police are there, obviously, her mother, as Mickey said, her mother and her sister call the police. And it's already dark by the time they arrive. It's after probably like 9 o'clock. So they wait until morning to conduct a search. But 150 volunteers, along with the police, airplanes, bloodhounds, Adams County, horse posse, everything was out there Is looking. Is that their name? You yeah. Think they put that on their business cards? Yeah, That's, Adams County horse posse. sounds right? like a good band name, if nothing else. <laughs> so they're out you know, in full force, fanning the property, looking for Linda. Because they lived very secluded. They lived in an isolated lot. Their only neighbors were actually a a couple from West Bend who was only there every few weeks. It's like a second home for them. So they kind of lived alone. You know, they, they didn't live in a normal neighborhood. They lived in a very secluded lot that was heavily wooded. So they're out looking for her, right? 150 volunteers, they're looking for Linda because... Bad things have happened in the area the last few months. People are on edge. They're aware of all that's going on, too. I mean, they're listening to the news. They're hearing about it. So Now, about 1 o'clock the next day, Linda Necriner's body is found in a wooded area known as Beer Can Alley, as it was a known spot frequented by teenagers, much like the Pines. Right. She was found nude from the waist down because her jeans were planted on top of her head, over her head concealing her, obviously beaten and raped, chained to a tree, and shot in the back of the head. Hands bound behind her back. She'd been raped and tortured. There was a single shot, as Scott mentioned. And she's chained to a tree. Sound familiar? Didn't that just happen a couple weeks prior? Pretty similar situation. So look where we are now at this point, 1987. We have Angela Hackle, found murdered in a wooded area. We have Tara Cassins, abducted, found murdered in a wooded area. We have Barbara Blackstone, abducted, found murdered, and dumped in a wooded area. We have Linda Necriner, abducted, found murdered in a wooded area. 
Two of them were found chained to a tree. That is not common, clearly. We also have Helen Coons. When we go back to the Coons murders, we also have Helen Coons, who's still missing and presumed abducted at this time, and, and her family was murdered in their house. And she, yeah, she, her body wasn't found in the house, so she was... She's missing, right? She's, and, and as we've mentioned in our episode, she's found in a more, like, it's near a, a creek, but in a wooded area. So, it's, again, it, it, they have to start speculating if there's some kind of correlation going on. So all of these are unsolved at this time. All of these murders are unsolved. So it seems like... And very similar. A madman is on the loose in the state of Wisconsin in the summer of 1987. And if you know anything about serial killers, they, they tend to have the same M.O. They t- tend to do the same things. Sometimes they might have different ways of killing, but typically they do this, you know, like we all do. We're creatures of habit. So reasonable to consider these all possibly by the same culprit. Now, the Guardian Angels, who many of you probably have heard of and seen, they're a nonprofit organization formed in New York City to try to prevent and deter crime, came to Wisconsin Dells that summer. Their founder, whose name is Curtis Sliwa, he's very well known. He actually just ran for governor in this past election cycle. Um, he was here in Wisconsin Dells, along with volunteers mostly from uh, the Minneapolis, Chicago, and Milwaukee chapters. They would be seen on the streets wearing their very familiar red berets and white t-shirts to deter crime and try to make people feel more safe. They would offer basically personal protection services. They would offer escorts, and a lot of people use that. You know, you were going to work, they would have people escort them. People were freaking out. Everybody was turning up murdered in their general area, right? And these are small town areas. There's not a real big city in this vicinity, and... This stuff, as freaky as stuff as happens in small towns, a lot of times, in the small towns, it's usually one thing, and that's that's how these places get their identity. So, the fact that it hadn't had hadn't happened in these places makes them scared that it's happening now, and and they're not used to it. This is not the kind of thing you just become desensitized to because it doesn't happen around here. They would, you know, residents would have volunteers from the Guardian Angels stay in their houses when they were at work. So people wouldn't, you know, because there were, there were home invasions and houses setting on fire. They didn't want people entering their house when they were at work. So you're not just afraid to go out in public, you're afraid to be at home. Right. And they would conduct self-defense training right in parking lots, like right out in the public. So people were on edge. Now, not everybody was happy that the Guardian Angels were there, right? Some people thought that it might hurt tourism. And they were, you know, some of them were upset because the murders didn't happen in the Dells. They happened around the Dells, obviously, 10 miles away. Um, I think Lone Rock and Sauk City is actually a little further away, but they happened in the same general area, you know, but the Guardian Angels were carrying around signs that said, stop the Dells serial killer. Right. They, they, they pinpointed the Dells cause they're not from around here, but it's a few counties, but they're all within the same vicinity. But once people from other States come in, they don't necessarily understand the, the vocation that's going on. So, you know, they might pinpoint one of the biggest cities, whereas it's, a much bigger diameter, but everyone in this vicinity is is running scared, like you say, not just public, but even at home. You don't know where to be where you can feel safe. Now, Curtis Sliwa, the like I said, the founder of the Guardian Angels, was convinced that this was all the work of a serial killer. At least the three deaths of Angela Hackle, Linda McCreiner, and Barbara Blackstone. In an article in the Wisconsin State Journal, August 9th, 1987, says the founder of the Guardian Angels, who is convinced a serial killer is on the loose in Wisconsin, 
said police often have jurisdictional squabbles in combating major crimes. Curtis Sliwa of New York City said he is familiar with the Night Stalker case in L.A. and the Atlanta child murders. In both cases, his organization provided voluntary assistance to residents and patrolled local streets. Sliwa criticized Wisconsin law enforcement agencies for refusing to link the murders of Angela Hackle, Linda Nekreiner, and Barbara Blackstone. Quote, they seem more hell-bent on denying the serialization of it rather than providing information. There's still that reluctance to admit you can't handle it on your own, Sliwa said of police investigators. The cops will say, next time he'll mess up. In some instances, you have to believe the police are hoping for another murder, unquote. So what he's saying is that the police are not admitting that there is likely a serial killer on the loose to maybe not cause panic or not cause fear in the area, but that panic is already there. Well, but as we've mentioned before, the police don't want to jump to that conclusion because that's just a horrific situation that no police department, no organization should want to deal with. They don't want it to be a serial killer. Now, when they understand that it is, they will understand that in their own minds and not necessarily want to create public panic. But I understand why they wouldn't want that because serial killer is a term that people panic about even more. And and as you said, we've talked about this before, especially in the Walter Ellis case in episode four, where Milwaukee police did not want to, even though all these murders seemed very similar. Right, but that doesn't mean they are. They didn't mean they are, and they didn't want to admit to it, and they actually convicted two other people for right. some of the murders, and it turned out they were all committed by the same person. It was a serial killer. What so, stands out to me is the fact that this guy is trying to make a comparison to Richard Ramirez, well, the Night Stalker. I mean, maybe not a comparison, but he, he brings up that name. That guy had no agenda. It was all ages. It was men and women. It was... Different. I mean, there was. It was hard to even understand what particular group he was targeting, which is most of these killers. You can understand who they're looking at, and and eventually what the reason was. This guy went after everyone, so that that's not a fair comparison. Not that he was trying to make that comparison, but Richard Ramirez was a serial killer, unlike most, because that guy he had no. I, I can't even think of the word, but there was no specific group that he targeted it was everyone and this is not what's going on here now the commission of law enforcement agencies that i spoke to before including the fbi the state of wisconsin and the five county commission that was meeting um, i did acknowledge that there were many similarities between these cases but quote nothing really strong to go on unquote in regards to whether this was the work um, of the same person now as we stated before the cases of Tara Cassens and Helen Coons have been resolved. Tara Cassens was murdered by an actual serial killer, James Duquette of Appleton. And Christopher Jacobs has been held responsible for the abduction and death of Helen Coons, although rather controversially. And there are still plenty of people today, as we talked about in our episode, who believe that Jacobs was railroaded and he was not the murderer of the Coons family. Still but a today. lot of that, as we mentioned, was part of the fact that they those people weren't considered important enough to for the research to be done. Sure, but he was also exonerated for the murders. He was found, he was acquitted for the murders of That's the Fletcher. That's true, and they, right. They actually arrested him later for another charge and convicted him on that and then threw the book at him. So, you know, 
And there's nobody else that they're considering as far right. as they, it's as a, a su- suspect. As far as Marathon County is concerned, that is a closed case. Right. You know, and in the cases of Angela Hackle, Barbara Blackstone, and Linda Nekreiner, there is some controversy as well. Now, in Angela Hackle's case, Terry Volbrecht was eventually arrested and put on trial for her death. As he was the last person to be seen with her. Right. And, so somewhat understandable. And there's no question about that, right? There is no question that Volbrecht was the last person known to be with Angela Hackle. So his story is that they left the bar. And again, her friends had no hesitation to leave them, apparently. And they eventually drove to this wooded area called the Pines to engage in sex. And she drove him back to Sauk City. And they made plans to see each other again. And that was that. That was the last he saw of her, right? And as Scott mentioned, his DNA would have been found on her body because as even to his story, they had consensual sex on the sleeping bag. And so then his DNA would have been there. But that, whether that's his story is true or not, there is evidence that he was near her not long before she was gone. Right, and he does not, as you said, he doesn't deny that. So, the, But there is no evidence of him at the murder scene. Now remember, where she was found is not the same place they had sex. Exactly. Right? That can be a little confusing. Supposedly they had sex at the Pines, and then they left. And she's actually found later, miles away, at a, at a completely different location. And she had driven him back right. from that consexual situation. So there's no evidence that he was ever at the actual murder scene where her body was found, right? His DNA, which was conducted years later, this is 1987, remember, well, as Mickey said, was found inside of her. But again, that's consistent with his story. But there, his, his DNA was not found on that red sleeping bag. And during the trial, two of his previous girlfriends testified that he had also taken them to that spot, the Pines, to engage in sex. No violence, no abusive history was ever indicated. This was just his move. Yeah. Now, obviously, that doesn't clear him of anything. It doesn't no. mean he didn't do it. But there's, there's nothing physically that ties him to an actual murder. It's just the fact that he was the last one known to it's be It's starting her. to make sense that possibly this is, you know, just the place he took women to, you know, have sex with them, and, but he had never killed anybody at that point. As as Just to go further into detail, he said that he, he then said she dropped him off near his car in Sauk City around 3.30 a.m. because he had lost his car keys. He tried walking home from that point. He was last seen in the general vicinity of where the body was found, but there's, as Scott mentioned, there's no evidence that puts him at the murder scene. That is very important. Now, the only piece of physical evidence that they had, if you want to call it physical evidence, was one single pubic hair of his that was found in the front seat of the car belonging to Volbrot. Now, but again, that does not in any way, really, deviate from what he said Especially happened. Especially one single hair, which just sounds creepy. Could have been on her pants, and they got back in the right. car. You one know? hair, I mean, and it sounds disgusting, right. especially individually, but you brought one hair, yeah, that's so circumstantial. So now even the, the, even the media was not convinced here during this trial. As the Baraboo News Republic at the time wrote, after the prosecution put on their case in trial, the Baraboo News Republic says, quote, With the state prepared to rest this morning in the first-degree murder trial of Terry Volbrecht, many questions remain unanswered, period, unquote. What kind of case is that? If many cases remain unanswered, if many 
uh, questions remain unanswered. How is that a case? What are you proving? And like too many of our other episodes, we're not trying to criticize the law enforcement agencies because it is a hard job. I've said this ad nauseum. It's not an easy job. They're trying to figure out these situations. They've got a lot of pressure on them, especially with the media being what it is nowadays. They've got constant people criticizing and scrutinizing. But they still should be expected to do their due diligence. After investigating Volbrecht's claims, authorities did charge him with sexual assault and murder. Prosecutors contended that he did this after she resisted his advances, which at this point we didn't allude to at all. They're speculating that she said no. He didn't like hearing that. These charges came two years after this all happened, so it sounds like another story that may have been fabricated. You're right. So there's no evidence that she resisted. We don't we don't know that story happened. That nobody so, was there but those right. two individuals. So again, they they come up with a story saying, "Well, you were coming on to her; she didn't want it, so you killed her." There's no evidence that says that, other than the fact that she's dead. And again, with, with so many of our episodes, where these pe- it's like the police are fabricating something because they want to finish the story, and that's. If you were in their position, you'd understand they want to close these cases because they've got so many other things going on because people are doing nasty stuff all the time. But the truth is the truth is the truth. So they should be more diligent. There's there's too many stories that we're, we're finding out of, of prosec- prosecutors inventing stories and then working backwards to try to corroborate. Exactly. You know? right. So there's lots of rumors that came out during the investigation. And one of them was about a Sauk Prairie police officer being a suspect. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to name that officer because he was never charged, and I don't want to tie him to anything like this that he was never charged for. But there were rumors that this officer was seen with Angela Hackle after Volbrecht had apparently been driven back to Sauk City, which was around 3.30 a.m. And the officer did admit to, he, he had to admit, because he was seen by Volbrecht. With the... With the person in his car. Yes. He had to admit, uh, Volbrecht also said he saw him. He didn't see that he saw Angela with him. But Volbrecht said that he saw this officer in downtown Sauk City after he was driven back by Angela, his story. And this officer had to admit that, yes, that was true. I was down there, which was outside of his normal routine. He was not on the clock at the time. So why was he there? We don't know why he was there. But there was apparently an internal investigation done. Media was requesting files on this officer from the Sauk Prairie Police Department that were refused. Circumstantial evidence pointed to him as a suspect um, requested by Volbrecht's lawyers to be put on trial during the trial, but the judge rejected it. Again, this was it was requested by Volbrecht's lawyers that this story of this police officer being seen downtown by a witness with Hackle in his car, was never allowed by the judge to be in the trial. So the jury never heard this. But there was an internal investigation put out, and that same officer was later named in a harassment claims against the police department, as well as an apparent battery on another officer, and he wound up resigning soon after Volbrecht's trial was over. But even so, A jury took less than two hours to come back with a conviction for Terry Volbrecht in the sexual assault and murder of Angela Hackle. So on October 4th, 1989, after a lengthy trial, Terry Volbrecht is convicted of first-degree murder and first-degree sexual assault with use of a dangerous weapon. 
and he receives life plus 20 years. But again, the Baraboo News Record is not convinced. And they write, quote, Instead of bringing peace of mind, at least to the Sauk County community, a guilty verdict rendered less than two hours of deliberations by a Sauk County jury has only raised more questions with skepticism about the jury selection process. So it sounds like that paper is kind of indicting the jury a little bit there. Very Tom Monfiles-esque, if you ask and me. And a few other cases mm-hmm. we've talked about. A lot of circumstantial evidence. Now, after Linda DeCriner's body was found, tons of tips came in, which they usually do from the public. You know, lots of tips comes in. Whether they're based on reality or just people thinking they know stuff. Police have to sift through all that stuff, which they're obviously, they're appreciative of the tips. They need leads, right? They don't know who did this. Right, but on the other hand, it it just causes a lot more work for them, which is why they maybe want to close these cases. So if, if if it's possible, you try to see both points of view instead of incriminating these police officers for just trying to do their jobs and get the cases done so they can move on to another one and being so quick to just hate the police, these jobs are not easy. But on the other hand, like you say, a lot of people are giving them information. If they disregard it too quickly, then they're not doing their due diligence either. So So all these tips comes in, all these tips come in um, after... Linda Kreiner's body was was found. Most of these really don't obviously turn into much. But one name that kept coming up was that of Kim Brown, who was a local from Oxford, Wisconsin, just about 30 miles or so from Del Prairie, where Linda was abducted from her home. Now, Del Prairie is only about 15 miles, as we said, from where Barbara Blackstone was abducted from her home. So eventually the police start looking into this guy, right? Kim Brown. He's 36 years old. He works construction. He's known of as kind of a loner. Not a lot of friends. Frequents the same bars in the area, though never really comes in with anybody. He just kind of keeps to himself. He is married, apparently. So they look into this Kim Brown guy. So on September 2nd, 1987, the Adams County Sheriff detectives go to Kim Brown's employer. They want to check this guy out, right? So they go talk to his employer, which is Davis Construction Company. And they see that Kim Brown was actually off of work on July 28th when Linda DeCriner was abducted. He was also off of work on July 24th when a local home in Oxford was burglarized, as Mickey had mentioned earlier. This is where the f- nobody was home, but the family dog was stabbed to death. Exactly. And weapons were stolen, including a three fifty seven handgun with ammo. And then the house was set on fire. Now, Kim Brown was actually out on a project site for work that day. So he's not there right when the cops get there. But his car is in the parking lot. The car is in the parking lot at Davis, at Davis Construction. So the police want to go check his tires out. Because they have tire prints from Linda, Linda Nekreiner's driveway. So they check his tires out. And they see, just from the eyeball test, that they seem to be a match from the prints on Lyndon the Kreiner's driveway. So now they are very interested in Kim Brown. So they wait for him to return from work. They, rate, they wait for him to return from the work site. And when he does, of course, he's, he's likely surprised to see the police there waiting for him, right? And they ask to search his car, and he says no. 
But eventually he relents, and police search his car right there in the parking lot. And they find the gun, ammo, and holster stolen from the home in In the trunk of the car. I mean, it it sounds like he was allowed them to look, but I guess what are you going to do? Well, he initially refused, and when they said, you know, they probably said, well, then we're going to take you downtown. So he he has no choice. Okay, fine, go ahead. The way the way it was worded when I read it, it was almost like you went, "Yeah, sure, go ahead, take a look." And like, well, you're just an idiot, but yeah, I don't think that's how it happened. So they search his car, they find the gun that was stolen from the house, and they also find a ten foot chain with padlocks and keys. And in his home, obviously, they did a search of his home later. They find books with titles like "The Raped and Kidnapped Bride," "The Chained and Raped Wife." And the history of torture. Did you know those books existed? Never. I didn't either. I'm making it clear to everyone, as twisted as I am, I didn't know those books existed because I'm not looking for those books. That says a lot about a person. He claimed he was home all day on July 24th and was with his wife doing shopping errands on July 28th. These are the two dates we mentioned where things happened. (laughs) Unfortunately for him, his wife recalled him working full shift on both days, so... That's very telling. In the glove compartment, they found the second knife bearing hair matching that of the dog stabbed to death on July 24th. Now arrested and in custody the same day, Brown claimed weapons belonged to a friend. He later changed his story saying that he found them. Samples of Brown's blood and saliva matched those found at Knackrinder's home. And casts of the car tires were confirmed to match the tracks at Knackrinder's home and the murder scene. So this guy was dead to rights, as Scott had mentioned. So they have their man. It never gets to trial. Kim Brown pleads guilty to everything. He lets it all out. Now, he likely had seen Linda Nekreiner outside her home previously, or maybe knew her. There's some speculation that he had worked with Linda's husband at some point, doing uh, some kind of construction work. Worked on various jobs with her. So he enters her home when her husband is gone. He probably knew that he was gone. It's also, it was learned that he lived within a half a mile of that place that was robbed and burned, the dwelling in Oxford that, that we mentioned previously at the beginning of the episode. And this was also within seven miles of the Nacriner home. So it, it makes sense that he's in this vicinity. He lives within this area. So, so he enters the home when he knows her husband is gone. Likely brandishes a gun he stole from the previous home that he burglarized. Forced her up to the bedroom, where he forced her on him orally. Left the kids upstairs and took her to Beer Can Alley, where he chained her to a tree. Raped and beat her repeatedly, and then left her there for about six to seven hours, alive, before he returned, put jeans over her head like an executioner's hood, and shot her in the back of the head. Evidently, at her residence, the police would find fresh semen stains and panties and a single stocking on the floor. There was also a slug found that matched the bullets of the three fifty seven revolver that was stolen on July 24th. So he receives life plus 120 years. He'll be eligible for parole in 2031. Now, in light of this, the Innocence Project who had been working on Terry Volbrock's case for years, finally secured a new trial for him based on this evidence, based on the fact that Kim Brown had been convicted of murdering somebody in the same fashion within miles and a few weeks of these two murders. 
So he's released on $425,000 bond, which he obviously could not pay for, but a local businessman paid for his bond for him to get out of prison. So Terry Volbrecht now is released. Now their angle here was obviously that Kim Brown did this, as he admitted to doing it to another person. So they also have inmate testimony. The 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 famous inmate testimony, right? Yeah. That Kim Brown had purportedly told other inmates while he was in prison, awaiting trial, that he did kill Angela Hackle and As he liked he's bragging, trying to make himself sound tougher than he probably is. And he liked to bind women and kill them and he wanted to burn the bodies. And he admitted he raped and killed Angela Hackle and he was gonna burn her body, but the lighter that he had didn't work and he was spooked by noises that he thought somebody might be coming, so he took off out of there. And that is what that pyre that we were talking about before was. It was not necessarily uh, allegedly to hide her body. It was to burn it. Now, this inmate signed an affidavit for, for prosecutors in the Volbrecht case. So if prosecutors got this information from this inmate in the Volbrecht case. So the prosecutors prosecuting Terry Volbrecht got this information from Kim Brown's co-inmate saying that Kim Brown admitted to killing Angela Hackle, but they suppressed it. <laughs> and they still put Terry Volbrecht on trial for Angela Hackle's murder. They wanted him to be the victor, the suspect. And in 2011, a judge ordered a new trial, and that decision was upheld by a court of appeals. On September 4th, 1987, Kim Brown was officially charged with arson, burglary, and murder of Lyndon Knackreiner. Uh, no further charges were actually filed, though the local authorities believe he was also guilty of the murders of Hackle and Blackstone. Unfortunately, no evidence actually puts him at the murder scene of either one of them, and he denies to this day having to, had anything to do with the murder of Angela Hackle. So in 2011, a, a judge orders a new trial for Terry Volbrecht, and that decision was upheld by a court of appeals. So Terry Volbrecht is now out of prison. Released on bond during those trial preparations after having served 22 years and 13 days. Now the state, instead of going to trial again, which would have been risky for them, offered a plea deal of second-degree murder, and Terry Volbrecht accepted that because they released him for time already served. So he has to, again, it's very Lori Bembenic-like. It's yeah. the same exact thing they did Sounds with Sounds really familiar like a lot of these cases do that we're talking about. They get, they get granted a new trial. The state knows they can't win another trial, so then they offer him a plea bargain and say, we'll just let you out now, but you have to admit to the murder. So they do, and they can close the books. So in October of 2013, five months before the new trial was set to begin, Volbrecht pleaded no contest to Angela Hackle's murder. Amended sentence was 25 years in prison. The judge ruled that he would serve three years on parole. He's now 52 years old, and Volbrecht is set free. So now Brown, obviously, Kim Brown denies any involvement, as Mickey said, in Angela Hackle's murder. So we have either a crazy coincidence, like the chances of which are insane that two different killers chained their victims to a tree in a wooded area just a few miles apart and within a few weeks of each other. Or we have an innocent man convicted. And his lawyers actually stated the circumstantial nature of the original case and new evidence possibly pointing to different suspect made it tough for the jury to convict him. 
Also that the plea deal negated the need for a new trial that would be painful for Hackle's loved ones, which is why they didn't do it, thus effectively closing the case. Closing the case, but do we have a... Does it solve the case? In their opinion. So, you know, now I'm not saying Volbrecht is innocent. I have no idea, clearly. Right. But there obviously questions remain. Uh, from Brown or him. <laughs> and, and But but as as we've talked about, they want to close these cases so they can move on. And that <laughs> this is this is the legal system. And, and there's obviously cracks up and down throughout the system. 30 years after a conviction, there shouldn't be any more questions. Right. But there still is. That's why we're talking about it. You know, nobody, you know, even when, when Volbrecht in, you know, 2012 took that plea, n- nobody feels like this is closed. Nobody feels that this is has closure for this. Now, here we are. 30- Especially the victim's family. Sure. Now, here, here we are 36 years later or so after Barbara Blackstone's body was found, and her case is still unsolved. It's cold. Nobody was ever prosecuted for that murder. So apparently no leads have come forth. You know, funny, three very similar murders are all all in the same general area in the same summer, seemingly stopped occurring after Kim Brown was off the streets. But there's no justice for Barbara Blackstone here and her family. Her family is left to bear that, that burden. Her husband moved out of the house after all this went down. Who could, who could blame him? They have to live with this. And current Juneau County Sheriff Brent Olison has said that the case is still active and has not gone cold, at least in his opinion. And this is as of November 4th, 2022. For this not cold case, but still open case, uh, if anyone has any information, contact Juneau County Sheriff's Office, area code 608-847-5649. Just because these were human beings, Angela, Angie... Faith Hackle was born on December 9th, 1968, as Scott mentioned, to Byron Peter Hackle and Sandra K. Hackle. She attended grade school in Lone Rock and junior and senior high in River Valley at Spring Green. It's said that she loved jogging, biking, swimming, dancing, bowling, and cooking, survived by her father, mother, and one brother. She was preceded in death by brother Randy four years earlier in a car accident. And she's buried at Lone Rock Cemetery in Lone Rock, Wisconsin. Linda Marie Nackreiner was born August 8, 1958, to Walter Liege and Gertrude Luella Liege. Her maiden name was Canning. She was survived by her mother, who passed in 2012, and her husband, Brian C. Nackreiner, who passed in 2021. Married in 1980, preceded in death by her father, who also passed in 1987, that same year. She's buried at Spring Grove Cemetery in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. Barbara Lee Blackstone was born on November 27, 1956, to Herbert Lewis Fisher and Lois Fisher, maiden name Baldwin, in Madison, Wisconsin. As we mentioned, raised in Argyle, was a salutatorian of 1975 graduating class. She earned her bachelor degree of science in business education from the Ohio State University. In 1984, she was a business education teacher at New Lisbon High School from 1984 to 1987, and she also served as a class advisor and yearbook advisor. She was survived by her husband, Thomas W. Blackstone, her father, who passed in 1994, her mother, who passed in 2000, her sisters, Phyllis Wingate, Gail Douglas, and Judy Strutt, her grandmother, Margaret Baldwin, 
her aunts, her uncles, and several nieces and nephews. Barbara Blackstone Memorial Scholarship Fund was created in her honor to be given to Outstanding Student in Business Education Department at New Lisbon High School, and she is buried at Maple Hill Cemetery in Evansville, Wisconsin. And all these families are dealing with the loss of a murdered loved one. We all have loved ones who have been lost, but these 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 murder situations are horrific. And even the ones that are supposedly solved, as we mentioned, it's it's all speculative. They don't even know if they have closure, but Barbara Blackstone, it's still not necessarily a cold case because to the credit of the police officers involved, they're, they're keeping it open and they're still researching it. But after decades, the, the family members that still exist have to have given up hope and in, in, in any closure that they could possibly get. Less than half of murders in the United States are solved. One of the worst rates in the civilized world. Divorce happens more than that. Even with advancements in technology that we talk about all the time on this show, less than half of murders in the United States are solved. And it's getting better, like you said, with DNA technology. It's actually, they're starting to solve these cold cases, but still that number is that high. Now, there's reasons for this. You know, you you think about inner city areas with gun violence and stuff where people just don't talk. You know, police need cooperation to solve murders, you know, and when people don't talk to them because they don't trust the police or they don't want to snitch or whatever, there's reasons that these numbers are so low. Not to mention the resources and time to be able to spend on these cases is always a big factor. And how many resources does Adams County or Lafayette County or Juneau County really have? You know, before, as as you mentioned, they get to move on before they have to move on to the next thing. They're small towns. Sure. The resources that big cities providing that that they don't have but you know prosecuting somebody that just so you can close the book on a case whether you can actually prove it or not that's not justice either. that's not right right so there's wrong being done in both directions but unfortunately it comes down to communication and and people just we're getting worse and worse about responsibility and, and communicating if you know things about these cases come forward and let people know and the police they're trying to do their job What's right is right, and hopefully it comes down to to integrity and self-respect and, and respect for the people involved and just trying to find the truth for everybody because the only way to deal with things is by truly looking at it and looking and seeing the truth. And if if, if everything you're hearing and seeing and, and you know, want to believe is anything but the truth, it's hard to, it's hard to deal with it and move on and, and learn. The worst monsters are real, right? And they will always be out there. So the onus is on all of us to do better, to be better. For each other. Amen, brother. <laughs>